You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. Matthew 11. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receives sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. However, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, He is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For the miracles that were performed... For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment 
than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Mosaic, we say the best way to engage a message is with a Bible, something to write with and something to write on. So I encourage you to uh, open your Bibles to Matthew 11 if you haven't already and grab a pen because we're going to underline a few things. But before we get there, I want to try my hand at some dad jokes. Now, I, I, have to, I have to tell you up front, my dad is the dad joke guru. But somehow in the family lineage, it skipped me and went to my sister. She is, she is a dad joke phenom. And so I'm, you know, I'm kind of living out on the edge right now. So y'all just, I, need, I may need a pity laugh is really what I'm saying. Okay, whenever someone says to me they did something like a boss, I assume that they did nothing but took all the credit for it. I mean, Carolyn ain't here, right? People say, people say I make too many assumptions. Well, I mean, they don't actually say it, but I know what they're thinking. <laughs> my friend, um, I go to the chiropractor because my friend told me to. At least I assume that's what he meant when he said, prove to me you've got a spine. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Friends. Assumptions, like jokes about assumptions, can get us in trouble, amen? Neil Tyson, who's an astrophysicist, an author, and a speaker, made a statement in a commercial that's really stuck with me. He said, one of the great challenges in this world is knowing enough about a subject to think you're right, but not knowing enough about the subject to know that you're wrong. We live in the age of information, right? And one of the things that makes it so challenging in the age of information is we have information but not wisdom. So as Tyson indicates, we often assume we know we're right about something, but we don't know enough to know that we're wrong. And as a consequence, as a consequence many of us fail to hear other people when they see things differently. But here's what's worse. We often fail to hear God when he sees things differently, right? Voltaire once said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Do you hear it? When we assume that we uh, know already or understand already, we also often assume that God thinks like us. And so we make God in our image rather than letting God make us in his. 
Perhaps the greatest obstacle to wisdom for someone that grew up in the church like me or, or if you've been following Jesus for a long time is we can have a very strong tendency to believe that God thinks like us. And because we assume that God thinks like us, we fail to learn to think like Him, right? And in the midst of a generation of people who assume that they knew the score, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden, I want you to underline hidden, these things from the wise and learned, and revealed, I want you to underline revealed, them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. You see, in the, gener- in the age of information, we need wisdom more than more information. Amen? And wisdom means assuming that we don't know so that we can and will know Him. I want you to see the paradigm shift in that. Wisdom doesn't mean assuming that you know. Wisdom means assuming that you don't know so that you can and will know Him. Wisdom is the opposite of informational assumption. And with that in mind, I want to kind of jump into this text and look at essentially four characters or four types of people that Jesus interacts with. There's John the Baptist. There's the crowd, which he calls this generation. uh, And then there are these cities that he preached in, as well as Gentile cities that he didn't preach in. And and you could probably add those into the this generation category. And then lastly, there are untrained and childlike who received revelation from God. So I kind of want to walk through these groups a bit as I think they show us what it means to walk in wisdom or frankly what it means to totally miss wisdom. With that in mind, I kind of want to start in the middle of things. I want you to look at verse 16. Jesus says, To whom shall I compare this generation? They're like children who sit in marketplaces and call out to one another, We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. I want you to underline that last part. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Someone once said that what I see tells me more about myself than about the object itself. This generation assumed that they knew John the Baptist to be demon-possessed, and so guess what? They failed to hear his call to repent. They assumed that Jesus was a gluttonous drunkard and a sinner like the people he hung out with, and so they failed to see him as the Lord. Wisdom invites us to ask more questions and make less judgments, but notice that this generation doesn't have space for questions, right? In many ways, uh, or in a similar way, I I think this is true for these towns that Jesus preached in. He he denounces Chorazin and Bethsaida and and even Capernaum, which was Jesus' hometown during his ministry. It wasn't his hometown in terms of where he was from. Just during his ministry, that's where he lived. Um, And why? Why does Jesus denounce them? Because they saw his miracles, but they did not repent. They did not change their minds. What is crazy is Jesus believes that Tyre and Sidon and even Sodom, which was one of the worst 
uh, most vile Gentile cities in biblical history, he believes they would have repented if they had seen his miracles. The question is why? Why is Jesus so confident that these Gentile cities would have repented when these Jewish cities didn't? Anybody got any thoughts? Okay, it would have been more outstanding to them. Think about that for a minute. The Jewish cities had something that the Gentile towns didn't. They had a grid for how to interpret Jesus, right? The Jewish towns had stories of God doing amazing miracles through mere men, like Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha. And so when Jesus showed up doing miracles, as impressive as they were, they didn't fall on their knees and acknowledge him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, right? They decided who Jesus was rather than getting close enough to let Jesus reveal who he was to them, right? It's kind of like the creative kid that grows up in a household of doctors and engineers. The doctor dad and the engineer mom struggle to see the genius of the artistically creative kid. Why? Because they already have a grid for how to see the kid, right? They have an assumption, and uh, that assumption blinds them from seeing the kid as he actually is, right? Friends, although we've made some jokes about assumptions, sometimes it's just no laughing matter. In 1847, Dr. Enoch Semmelweis, it was an OBGYN, began to believe, watch me, I mean, this is crazy, began to believe that he should wash his hands before delivering babies. Crazy, I know. But here's why. Um, doctors at the hospital that he was working at were actually dissecting cadavers, and then without washing their hands or putting on gloves or washing their instruments, they were going and delivering babies. And as a consequence, they had a nearly... 20% fatality rate for these mothers as opposed to the 2% fatality rate by the um, for midwife, there it is, by the midwife clinic across the street. And so Semmelweis began to espouse what would eventually become germ theory. Later in his life, he lost his sanity and some posit it was because the medical community wouldn't listen to him. They thought he was crazy. So eventually he died, and unfortunately many, many, many mothers continue to die premature deaths because of the arrogance of their assumption. Right? Sometimes assumption is the difference between life and death, and I think that's really where Jesus is when he's talking about woe, to these, to these cultures, to these cities that he's uh, preached in. He says it will be more bearable for Gentile cities on Judgment Day. Why? Because the Jews' lack of repentance reveals where their hearts really were. Follow me on this for a minute. The apostles followed Jesus day in and day out for three years. And probably toward the end of that three years, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter pipes up and he goes, you're, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. The difference between the apostles and many of the Jews from these towns is that the apostles put aside whatever else was going on in their life to be with Jesus. 
They humbled themselves. They weren't inherently smarter or more educated. They simply got close enough to ask more questions, and instead of making judgments about who Jesus was, they let Jesus reveal himself to them, right? And God revealed that Jesus wasn't simply another prophet. He was and is God incarnate. Wisdom means assuming that we don't know much so that we can and will know him. And knowing God, not knowing about him, leads to revelation. Jesus says the Father hides these things from the wise and learned. Jesus is not against education. He just recognizes that wisdom seeks revelation instead of trying to figure it all out. I'm the king of trying to figure it all out. Do I have any friends in the room? There we go. There we go. Yeah. It's a great way to live, right? Apocalypto, the Greek word for revelation, means to uncover or to bring into the light. Wisdom calls me to the person of Jesus because it calls me to realize that I need someone else to bring me into the light, right? I need someone else to uncover the truth. Hear me on this. Wisdom means that Christ doesn't need the mind of Chris. Chris needs the mind of Christ. Come on, somebody, right? As we say in recovery, self cannot save self from self. I came to realize that I needed a power greater than myself. I'm not going to read another book. Hear me on this, y'all. I'm not going to read another book that makes it all clear. Nor am I going to get another degree from college or grad school and suddenly have it all together. Try it. Read that book. Get that degree. And guess what? You will still be you. Amen? Amen? Friends, we need revelation, not simply information. And revelation means I need nothing less than a close relationship with the God of the universe. Right? Wisdom means embracing that we don't know much so that we can know Him. But to embrace that I don't know much really means I've got to get into, uh, I've got to be brought to a deeper place of identity. Wisdom invites us to root our identity in who we are in Christ instead of what we know. Y'all need another assumption joke? Good, good deal. All right, often wear a stethoscope. I wear it so that in medical emergencies, I can teach people a valuable lesson about making assumptions. Okay, you're right. Ab, I needed a better dad joke for that one. If you could help me next time, that'd be great. (laughs) The problem with the quote-unquote wise and learned isn't principally their knowledge. It's that their identities are rooted in their knowledge, right? This means saying, I don't know, is not simply a confession of ignorance. It is a slight against who we are. Listen to this. Assuming that we really don't know about how God feels about the earth and geopolitics, assuming that we really don't know about how God would have us handle that situation at work, assuming that we really don't know how God would have us handle our our parent, our teenager as they're going through a crisis, assuming that we don't know can not only challenge us, it can threaten our identities as Republicans or Democrats, as competent managers or employees, and yes, even as good parents. 
Jesus invites us to deeply root our identities in being the beloved sons and daughters of God. He says God is delighted to uncover these things for children. Why? Because children know that their identity has nothing to do with their lack of knowledge. In a deep way, their sense of identity, their sense of belonging opens them up to lean in, to get close enough to the heart of the Father to be held, to receive revelation. Hear me on this. While I don't think many of us consider ourselves to be the super enlightened, y'all listen, I think most of us can find ourselves settled enough in our own beliefs, in our own assumptions, that it is difficult to see the kingdom of God. And this brings us to John the Baptist. John had spent time preparing uh, the way for the coming Christ. He had th- this promised Messiah who is to be greater than Moses, who would set the people free from bondage and slavery. And he believed that Jesus was this Christ, right? And so he proclaimed, yeah, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. It is King Jesus. But now he's in prison. Things are not turning out the way he probably had expected. John might be disappointed. So what does he do? He wisely sends his disciples to Jesus to simply ask, are you the one or should we expect someone else? Now I want you to look at the text. Look at verse 2. Notice where this story begins. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds, I want you to underline deeds, of the Messiah, he sent his disciples. And then notice how Jesus responds to John's question. Look at verse 4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the, dead, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. The story starts with John hearing about Jesus' deeds, right? And then what does he do? He sends back John's disciples by telling them, tell them about my deeds. It's kind of odd, isn't it? It's like we, you've just taken me full circle back, back to where I started, right? Friends, John had not only believed that Jesus is the Messiah, I suspect he had specific expectations about what his messianic rule would look like. We say expectations are premeditated resentments in recovery, right? And I'm not saying that John is living in resentment. I'm just saying this is where it often happens when we have expectations on what God is going to do that are different than what God actually intends to do. Friends, Scholar Alan Culpepper says, uh, Whereas he, John, expected a fiery reformer and a prophet of judgment, Jesus was bringing grace and healing. Like many Jews, John may have assumed that Jesus would rid the land of sin as well as the Romans. But now he's in prison, and he's probably wondering, what's going on? And Jesus says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The word stumble is scandalizo. What does scandalizo sound a lot like? Scandalize, okay? It can literally mean to fall into a trap. I suspect John knew enough about Jesus to think he was right about him being the the Messiah, 
but frankly, he had one particular character quality that separated him from so many people of his day. Hear me on this. John had humility, right? Wisdom invites us to take a humble posture. So things may not be going the way John had assumed, but in an act of humility, John is leaning in. And in the only way possible for him at that point, he accepts the, the limitations of his own knowledge and he leans into Jesus asking for revelation. Humility invites us to ask more questions and make less judgments. Come on, people. Friends, this is how real wisdom comes, and frankly, it's how real character develops. It is so tempting when God doesn't do what we think he is supposed to do to withdraw our trust, to begin to live with some emotional distance, still obeying God, but sensing erosion in our love for him. But in humility, we can make less judgments by simply getting honest with God about the deep things in our hearts. That's how a real relationship with God works. It's also how real community is built. Real community is a place where misunderstandings happen. Can I get an amen? It's where feelings get hurt. More than that, it's a place where our unsanctified parts come to the surface. I mean, not your unsanctified parts, just, just people you know. Don't look at them. Friends, and in that moment, it can be so tempting to make some quick judgments and then move on, but that's not how we grow, right? Like John the Baptist, we grow not by giving in to offense. We grow by leaning in and having hard conversations. The hard conversation is necessary for restoration. And, and in response, Jesus often gives us more than we think we're asking for. Friends, wisdom invites us to deal with our hearts, not simply our heads. Right? Jesus doesn't give John more facts. He doesn't feel any need or any possible need to, to help John figure things out. Instead, he chooses to deal with John's heart. I sometimes wonder, if John had not been in prison, what would a face-to-face -face conversation have been like between John and Jesus? Maybe Jesus would have said, thank you for leaning in, John. Thank you for your honesty. But don't be scandalized. Don't fall into, the trap, into a trap just because I'm not doing things the way you assume they would go. Instead, let's deal with your heart. Are there any expectations in you that you're placing on me that don't line up with who I really am? How do you think I was supposed to bring the kingdom of God? Maybe he would have said, John, my, my dear cousin, you need to change the assumptions of your heart so that you can look for the kingdom of God as it actually is. And then he makes this strange statement. Truly, I tell you, anyone who's born of women, excuse me, uh, uh, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Paul says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Where is the kingdom of God? It's in the Holy Spirit right? 
Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not something you're going to say it's over here or it's over there, for the kingdom of God is within your midst. Where is the kingdom of God? It's in the presence of Jesus, right? Friends, the kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. It's in the presence of Jesus. So those of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus as king and been filled with his Holy Spirit, we can literally bring the kingdom of God into any situation if we will assume that we don't know and consequently find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what His will is in any given situation. And this brings us to Jesus' final call. Verse 28, He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man, don't those verses sound so sweet? Sound like a Hallmark card, don't they? But they're the cross. Man, they're the cross. The cross, now let me say this, Jesus is able to say, come to me, because he knows he will go to the cross for us right? The cross is the place where what appears wise to me is foolish to God, and what appears foolish to God is wise to me. That's the cross. So the fear center in my brain says, I must stay in control. Jesus says, come to me. My head says, I have to figure this out. Jesus says, learn from me. Let me reveal it. My flesh cries out, if I take of your yoke, Jesus, meaning letting your teachings guide my life, I'll become more burdened, not less. Jesus says, take of my yoke and learn from me, and you'll actually find rest. Friends, if we want to find rest, we need wisdom. And wisdom comes through assuming that we really don't know so that we can and will know him. Can and will. Have you noticed that there's a slight difference between can and will? I can get up every morning and jog through my neighborhood. <laughs> I, I can give up all sweets and actually eat more vegetables for a balanced diet. I can read my Bible and pray for 30 minutes every day. But as Joy said, will I? The answer is, it depends on what the deep assumptions of my heart actually are. If I know a better diet would improve my life, but if my deepest assumption is that more fried Japanese food is probably not going to hurt me too bad, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep going to Miyabi Juniors way too much. If I know that reading my Bible and praying every day would bless me, but I assume that I can get by relatively fine on my own understanding, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep, keep on saying stuff like, I don't spend as much time with God as I would like to. When the truth is, most of us spend exactly as much time with God as we would like to. With your permission, I'd like to mess around in your kitchen a little bit. How do I know that many of you spend as much time with God as you would like to? Because I know that you spend 
time on non-essential things like Netflix and social media and sports. This is, this is not a pastoral rant. This is a, this is a broken-hearted pastoral cry. Friends, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. My point is that we need to look below the surface and begin to figure out what are the assumptions that are driving our lives. What are the deeper assumptions of our heart? Is there somewhere down deep inside where we assume that we can get through this life without heeding Jesus' call to come to me every day? So how do we change that assumption? If that assumption is driving us, how do we change it? How do we allow the grace of God to do a deep work that changes the deep assumptions in our hearts so that we'll actually seek His face every day? The answer is, God moves us beyond our assumptions by allowing us to feel our burdens. Another way of saying that is, sometimes pain can be a good thing. Jesus says, come to me, all ye who are weary and burdened, who are in pain, and I will give you rest. Strangely enough, to move past your assumptions, you must let yourself feel your weariness. You must allow yourself to feel your burdens. Hear me on this, guys. If this whole sermon's been very theoretical, this is going to be incredibly practical. Put your cell phone in another room. Put your computer in in another room find a chair have a seat and then begin to meditate on a problem in your life I'm serious about this meditate on a problem in your life and guess what will happen you'll start to feel the weight of any particular situation let yourself feel the, the heaviness, the burden of trying to navigate that relationship with someone in your family that's an EGR, an extra grace required type of person. Let yourself feel the grief of not being able to fix your teenager's problem. Let yourself feel the, the problems at work for which you don't have an answer for, okay? And guess what will happen? If you will allow yourself to feel on a deep level the burdens and the weariness, quit distracting yourself and let yourself feel it, the grace of God will begin to transform those burdens into a type of spiritual weighted blanket. A weighted blanket that will hold you close to Jesus rather than overwhelm you. You will go from I can follow Jesus to I will come to Jesus. So friends, I want to ask you, where are you today? As I've been thinking through this message, I've thought about at least three places where people might be today. For some of you, you've been checking out church and what it means to follow Jesus, but you've never really given Jesus your allegiance. And as a consequence, you've never received the Holy Spirit. So you're still on the outside looking in at this beautiful life we call the kingdom of God. Today, Jesus says, come to me. And if you sense any stirring in your soul, I invite you to come find me, and I would love to pray with you. If you've been living without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the good news is there is a better way to live. 
You don't have to beat yourself up with never-ending frustration trying to figure things out. The creator of the universe actually loves you, and he wants to teach you. He wants to guide you step by step. For others of us, we are followers of Jesus, but if we're honest, most of the following has been on autopilot for a while. There are many areas in your life where you assume me and God are on the same page, but you don't really know that. As as a consequence, your way of following Jesus may actually be more of a blend of like southern Bible Belt culture and familial expectations than actually what we see in Scripture. Friends, it's time to return to your first love to get off of spiritual autopilot, to be earnest and repent. Ask God to make you aware of your weariness and your burdens. Ask Him to change the assumptions of your own heart. Then then ask Him to make the new assumption in your heart. The, the, The new assumption would be, I can't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Ask Him for that grace. The last person that may be in this room that I've thought about, uh, maybe somebody who's sitting in a seat like John. You sought to do God's will, and yet life has become more difficult and more painful. And you're probably wondering, is this it, or, or is something else to come? Beloved, hear me on this. Ask God to show you what He's doing in your world. You can go blind You can go blind looking for what God is not doing. And eventually that blindness can become soul-crushing discouragement. But when we reclaim that place of assuming that we really don't know, of assuming that God is doing 10,000 things, and right now I'm aware of three of them, when we reclaim that childlike place of faith, then we can hear God say, come to me. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Friends, when you assume that you don't know, you can come to him and find wisdom and ultimately find rest for your souls. Let's pray. God, Lord, we acknowledge that this life has given us assumptions. And that, Lord, it it is so much easier to live on autopilot than to seek your face. But, Lord, it's so much more blessed to seek your face than to live on autopilot. And so, Jesus, I'm asking you to give us the grace and the courage and the boldness to feel the weightiness, to feel the burden and to allow that to motivate us to come to you to seek your face. That we would come to learn to live more deeply under your yoke, under your leading, under your teaching, under your spirit. We love you, Lord God. And we bless you and we thank you, Lord. Amen.